I was just sitting down there and thinking my opening line should be it's lovely to be here, although it doesn't entirely feel like that at the moment. Um, but anyway, here we are. It would be great if you opened your Bibles at Acts chapter 23. It's page 1120 um, in the Bibles and the pews. I suppose when I was first looking at this, I was struggling really with Acts. And the second half of Acts, it's very narrative. You know, you've got a trial, you've got then a plot to kill people, and it's more like an episode in EastEnders than something that you're going to do a sort of Bible commentary on. And yet, I was sort of having a look at it and struggling, and it was away at a weekend with SU last weekend, and one of the um, guys sort of really helped put this into context. And if we look at one of the slides, um, that's a very bland, interesting slide, and now the next one. Okay, and we're going to delve into church history just for a wee second here. And uh, I can see some of your eyes are glazing over already, but no, it's only about 30 seconds of church history. Keep with me. And I'm going to mention a guy, Constantine. And basically, Acts is written whenever the early church is getting going, okay? And the Roman emperors and all the might of the Roman authorities are against the early church. They're not sort of with what's going on here. It's getting, they're plotting it. Um, life for an early Christian wasn't great. There was a risk if you were near Nero's parties and barbecues late in the evening that you'd be chosen to be satellite to provide some entertainment to the crowds that were gathering there. But yet all this changed late in the three, own sort of the third century or fourth century whenever Constantine decided that he would make Christianity sort of the official religion of the Roman Empire. And suddenly things changed. In 321, Sunday was set aside as the official day that Christians would worship. And then in 325, the Council of Nicaea met under Constantine's um, sort of guardianship, and they created the Nicene Creed. And basically from then on, there was this idea of church and state were intertwined. But what I would suggest is that that has happened up until now. If we look at, look at the next slide, we've got three examples of people who are facing persecution in the UK because of them trying to sort of live Christian values in the UK. And why that matters when we look at Acts is because actually for the first time in about 1,600 years, Acts is more relevant today than it has been for the last 1,600 years because we're now in what is becoming a post-Christian society. And that's why we should get excited about Acts and why we should want to see what Paul and what's happening to Paul as he testifies and explains in Greece and in Rome and so on. Because actually this is God saying to us, if we're going to follow on, and be like Paul or be like Jesus in this world. These are the things that we're going to face. So if we move on, where are we now? We're at Paul's finished his third missionary journey. He's arrived in Jerusalem. And as we were hearing about last week, he's chatting to the uh, Christian um, converts from Judaism in Jerusalem. He went to um, the temple and was still carrying out his Jewish obligations. He was doing the rituals and so on that had to be. But some Asian Jews came along and weren't happy with what he was saying and basically started a riot. Consequently, he had been taken away by the Romans um, to to a place of his own safety. And um, it was there that we really sort of come across what's going on. As we noticed last week, there's a lot of things in Paul's life that echo basically the last journey of Christ in Holy Week. And it's interesting, the verse that I had in the very first slide was about the servant following the master. And the challenge and the thing that will echo throughout much of what we look at this evening is that if we're going to follow Jesus, as Paul was doing, we should expect similar things to happen to us. So we travel with Paul to the Sanhedrin. And we notice initially, if you notice in verse 1 of 23, Paul stands up and he looks 
straight at the Sanhedrin and he says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Sounds like a pretty sort of um, normal enough an opening, but it's interesting to see the response he gets. Once he gets is clobbered in the head. I'm sure he wasn't looking, he wasn't expecting that. But it's interesting to see what Paul means by that. What he's saying is that actually in all of his life, when he was a Jew, and now that he's a Christian, he has been fulfilling his, his duty to God in all good conscience. And that probably gives us a hint as to why Ananias is so annoyed whenever Paul says that. Because what he's saying is that this, the way this, this new religion that's come onto the scene is actually compatible with historic Judaism that Ananias is there to preserve. It's interesting to see what happens. Ananias was a bit of a, an interesting bloke. He was high priest and basically had got the job because of one of his relatives being very close to um, the emperor that was in charge. Josephus, one of the historians at the time, describes how actually he sent out his servants to seize the tithes from the temple that should have gone to the priests for his own coffers. So it was well known that Ananias was a bit of a, a dodgy bloke. It's interesting, though, to see what happens. After Paul gets clobbered around the head, um, he goes on and says, you know, God will strike you, you whitewashed wool. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. It's interesting, isn't it, that whenever we're saying that we're contrasting the life of Paul with the life of Jesus, that whenever Jesus is actually before the uh, Sanhedrin, as First Peter 1 puts it, you know, those who were being reviled did not revile in return. He was silent before his accusers. I think it's quite interesting because it gives a bit of an insight into the honesty of this account that Luke has Paul not as some saint who, um, you know, doesn't respond and serenely takes what he's, what he's been told, but actually shouts out against them. It's interesting also to note the language that he uses. He talks about these, this whitewashed wall similar to what Jesus had said in Matthew 23, 27, when he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bodies inside. Paul responds, but yet the thing that outrages him is the hypocrisy of what's going on. The very fact that the administrators of the law, the guardians of Judaism, the guardians of God's people, when they're administering the law are in actual fact breaking the law by not allowing Paul to be, as, as we recognize in our own system today, innocent until proven guilty. It's interesting to see what happens. Paul then is, is pointed out that you, you know, put the, those standing nearby say to Paul, you dare to insult God's high priest. And yet in this situation, when he's under intense pressure of facing the persecution of the Sanhedrin, he's just received some physical abuse. He still responds by saying, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Even in this moment of extreme pressure, the trial, the physical brutality, still Paul tries to fulfill his duty to God in all good conscience to this day. It's interesting then to see sort of what's happened there because what, what Paul goes on to say is he tries to train, change his, his defense. He realizes that he's under pressure because he's not going to be able to argue with them about his, his sort of conscience and, and his life. But he changes tack and says um, that actually he's under trial because of his hope in the resurrection. 
If we move on to see what happens in verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. This again gets to the crux of the matter of what Paul's trying to do here. Paul realizes that the essential nature of what's going on is that he is here because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. I think it's interesting and it takes a bit of, it helps us if we actually realize how core a belief this was to traditional Old Testament Judaism. In Daniel 12 verse 2, there's a prophecy about how multitudes who are asleep will awake and be with the new Messiah. In Psalm 16 verse 10, it's a Messiah who would not be left in death. In Job 19, there's a sentence about how in our flesh we will see God. In 2 Samuel 12, there's the idea of waking from sleep and then seeing a new creation. In Isaiah 65, there's this idea of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. The fact is that Paul is explaining and Paul is saying that you guys, the Pharisees, particularly in the Sanhedrin, you have this very same hope that has been the hope of Israel from way back in the dawns of time. This is our history and our heritage. It's helpful to see um, that in fact, though, Paul goes further. Paul is saying that sure, that is the traditional thing. That's what Judaism has understood understood. But in actual fact, I'm going to take it further because I actually believe that my hope in the resurrection has been fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. It's interesting to see that even in this situation where Paul is being under persecution, he's being threatened with prison um, and so on by the Sanhedrin, what he does even in this this place is tries to take an opportunity to explain his beliefs to the Pharisees in that court. He wants to show them that the very resurrection that these Pharisees have been waiting for and longing for for thousands of years has been fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. Sure, it shows some wit and cunning of Paul that he tries to put the two sides, pitch the two sides against each other. And he seems to be obeying Jesus' command from Matthew 10, verse 16, to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. But more than this, Paul realizes that if he is going to be put on trial for his beliefs, the resurrection is the issue where Christianity stands or falls. Paul later, in in the writings that we have later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15 states this more plainly. He says that if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. He realizes that without the resurrection, the whole story, the whole gospel message falls apart. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then how can we be sure that God has this power to deal with our sins? How can we be sure that God is able to make us us have this right relationship with God? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then this whole hope of heaven, you know, how can we how can we trust in that if we don't believe that Jesus Jesus is there? Later on in that chapter, Paul puts it even more bluntly. He says that if there is no hope of the resurrection, then Christians should in fact be pitied. And that matters. The issue is that Paul was holding to the historic hope of Israel, but also the essential hope of Christianity. 
This was a belief that transformed the people of God all throughout the Old Testament era. They were a people who were then able to be led through the wilderness because they had this hope that things would get better. They had this hope of a Messiah that was coming. They had the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. And so we see it in the early church as well. This life-transforming belief in the resurrection, this belief of better things to come, turned the disciples that were cowering in a room days after the resurrection into people who were able to speak before crowds, people who were able to be stoned and led to their deaths because of this belief in the risen Jesus Christ. What about us in this post-Christian world, as I was talking about, and as sort of the era that Constantine brought in that's now ended? Do we think the belief in the resurrection is under attack? Some of you will remember some time ago whenever the um, person in New York Minster, I'm not sure who it is, the dean, let's say the dean in New York Minster, who suggested the resurrection was merely a conjuring trick with bones. And we sort of go on and think that that beliefs like that are are okay, but um, people in churches, prominent people, are saying that the resurrection doesn't matter anymore. An interesting footnote is that probably a few weeks later, York Minster was struck by lightning and um, suffered great damage immediately after that. But the fact is that just as Paul, our Christian belief stands on our trust and belief in the resurrection. It's interesting to see as well that Paul uses that as his line in the sand. This is where he makes a defense. And I suppose the question for us as we look at our own lives is what are our lines in the sand? What are these truths that we want to hold to? on which we're unable to bend. These sort of things that are essential to us being Christians, essential to our understanding of our relationship with God. Also, though, the resurrection should do more than that. It should change how we live today, shouldn't it? As C.S. Lewis put it, we're merely in the shadowlands. These are just the low country, the hills before we move on to the sunlit plains of the place that we were created for the new heaven and the new earth, the place where we will have this proper relationship with God and be able to have communion with him. Back to the story in verse 9, and it seems to work. Luke helpfully explains about the two issues with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the ones who held on to this traditional hope, this idea of the resurrection, the idea of a new heaven and a new earth. And the Sadducees were people who had sort of watered down their traditional Judaism, not believing in spirits, not believing in in the resurrection. And it's interesting to see that, um, you know, Paul wins some Pharisees over. You can see how they're saying it. Well, you know, clearly Paul must be a great guy because, because he agrees with us. And that's great. And you can see how some of the Pharisees revert to their more childish ways. And you can almost see them sort of going, yeah, 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 yeah. When they go, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? You know, clearly it's on our side. You know, you foolish Sadducees. Of course a spirit must have spoken to him. It's interesting. I think Paul's probably standing there. And he's remembering about the events in Acts 9. When in fact it wasn't a spirit or an angel that spoken to him. It was in fact the risen Lord Jesus That's what made Paul so sure about his belief in the resurrection. That's what made Paul stand on this issue. Paul, on the road to Damascus, had been blinded by a revelation and meeting with the risen Lord Jesus. That's why it became the issue on which he had to defend himself. And so he could watch the violence that ensued, the excitement that erupted around him, 
And not for the first time Paul had to be taken away to, for his own safety, but he knew that he had seen the risen Lord. It must have been a difficult situation because Paul was then um, removed from this area of violence. He wasn't sure what was going on and he was wondering would he be trapped forever in Jerusalem, unable to get across to the early church what he was trying to make. Had he made a bad decision? Was he going the wrong way? It's interesting to see that in the middle of this doubt that what happens next is verse 11. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Isn't that fantastic? Just at the moment when Paul is unsure exactly what's going on, whether he's made the right decision or whether he's ever going to get out of Jerusalem and this quagmire that he's in of sort of trials and trouble with the authorities, the Lord stands and comes near with him and says, Take courage, you shall go to Rome. I think it's interesting there's really sort of three things that we get from that one thing is that the lord at the moment just after paul has had this moment of standing up for the resurrection of standing up for his faith um, beside the sanhedrin god comes nearby and says take courage there's also the definite um, promise that he shall go to rome the idea is that no matter what goes on and whatever he faces paul is on a journey that god must bring him to rome But more than that, I hope you see that actually, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about in Rome. It was actually the Lord saying, this is the rubber stamp. What you're doing and what you've done in Jerusalem is exactly what I want you to do in Rome. You're doing a good job. Three things. Take courage. You're going to make it. You're going to get to Rome. And you're doing a great job with what you're doing. We know sort of as we read on through the chapters of Paul's life that he faces another two years before he actually gets to Rome. He faces a further three trials. And how much of a, a confidence boost, how much he must have chewed over these words as he goes along that journey of fear and trepidation. Take courage as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What about us? I realize some of you are coming to church this evening and you're in a situation that you feel you're struggling. Some people are struggling with how they're going to get a job or the the financial situation. Some of you are troubled by illness in your family or just situations. Or some of you are in a job at the moment that you're just struggling to know whether that's something that God wants you to be in. And yet tonight, maybe this is something that God wants to speak to you and say to you is that actually take courage The equivalent of you, you shall go to Rome. And actually what you're doing at the moment, I'm pleased with. Some of you will want to know and hear a message from God that he's going to bring you out of this place and out of this situation. And he's going to take you to a place where he needs you to be serving him more fully. He's going to take you from difficult times and he's going to take you to the equivalent of Rome where you'll be able to serve him better. I think also it's interesting that this comes after Paul's having a discussion about the resurrection. Luke is reminding us that the same Jesus who is saying to Paul that, Paul, you'll definitely go to Rome, is saying, Paul, as well, you know the final score of what we're talking about. I'm the Jesus who was raised from the dead. And just as God has said that I was going to be raised from the dead and I have fulfilled that prophecy, so the prophecies that have been made for countless generations that God will raise all of us to be with him that's going to come true. It's more than take courage that Paul's going to 
going to Rome. It's take courage, Paul, that I am the God who has this whole earth, who has the, all these rulers and the powers and authority in my hand, that I know that what, how this story ends. You're playing on a team that is eventually going to win. Take courage, one day you'll be with me. John Woodside, one of the uh, uh, minister in Drogheda Presbyterian, tells a story about how he was watching the Northern Ireland-England game. And he said he was able to enjoy it so much. And he was able to enjoy the Healy goal and all this kind of thing. And he wasn't that nervous. He just had this sense of peace, this real confidence that Northern Ireland were going to beat England. The reason being was that he was watching it the day after the game had taken place. And so, of course, he knew the score, he knew the outcome, and hence he was able to be relaxed. Friends, it's the same with us. And this is what Jesus was telling Paul, is that we know the final score. We know that God is going to be the person who wins the victory. And consequently, we can relax and have this freedom of being able to trust and follow in him. And so the issue is that the rest of the chapter flows on from that. The point is that if we know the final story, then whenever we hear about the plot to kill Paul, and we see this in the light of what has just happened. Paul has just been told he's going to get the room, so we know that he's not going to be killed. The Jews are not going to have their way. It's interesting to note just exactly some of the detail in that, because actually it's the Sanhedrin, the very people, the guardians of this truth, Um, who are actually plotting against the messenger. They're plotting against the people, the person who was embodying this new resurrection. It's interesting to see as well, as we were looking at um, echoes of Jesus' life again, the Sanhedrin had plotted against Jesus, and so now they're plotting against um, Paul, as he explains this further. As we'd said, no servant is greater than his master. Paul understood that if he was going to follow In the way of his master, he was going to follow in the circumstances and in the troubles and persecution and um, plots that was going to happen. But take courage, Paul is going to testify in Rome. It's interesting to see also who's used in the plot. And um, there's a sort of enticing bit of information about Paul's family life. Whenever we see that his nephew hears about the plot, It's interesting because that raises questions about how did the nephew find out? Does this mean that actually some of Paul's family were the very people who were plotting against him? They were embarrassed by this once sound, diligent Pharisee who didn't break any of the laws that was suddenly now one of the leading proponents of the way. It's interesting to see that maybe they were ashamed that this has happened and were ashamed about the stuff that was being brought against their family. Paul wasn't surprised. He had heard Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, 21, whenever he said brother could betray brother, and that family relationships would be torn apart by people believing in Jesus. Later on in Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul again says exactly how much being a follower of Jesus has cost him. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul understood the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. He could lose family relationships. He could lose money and prestige. In fact, he could lose all things. Again, as we have said, no servant is greater than his master. Paul understood 
that the way of following the cross, the way of following Jesus, would lead, lead to losing things. What about us? Again, isn't the challenge as we look at this, if we want to follow in the master, if we want to follow Jesus as Paul did, then the challenge for us is that we need to be willing to hold on lightly to the things that we have in this world. That the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is value, is, is more than the willingness to lose things of great value that we have in this world. And so what happens is that the message gets out to the centurion. The centurion passes it along the chain. And um, basically, the commander realizes, hang on a second, I'm going to get in trouble again. This is this Paul as a citizen of Rome. I've already flogged him. I've brought him into danger in the Sanhedrin. And I can't, get, I can't have him getting in trouble again. So what he decides is he says, you know, well, let's, let's sort it out. We're going to get 200 soldiers. We're going to get 70 horsemen. We're going to have 200 spearmen. We're going to have approximately 500 men guarding Paul as he goes on this journey. But remember what Jesus had told Paul. They had said, Paul, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. We knowing the end result, look at this and go, it's completely overkill. There was no need for um, the guard to have, have this many soldiers transporting me here because instead of actually needing soldiers, God has Paul guarded here. God has Paul traveling on his way towards Rome. Isn't it fantastic irony that um, Paul has no fear because he's been told by Jesus that he will preach in Rome. And so God uses the very soldiers of the empire to unknowingly serve the purposes of the true emperor, Jesus Christ, as he leads Paul closer to the destination they has for him. And so Claudius Lysias writes to Felix and gives a summary of what's happened to Paul. He explains sort of the essentials that we recognize from the last few weeks. It's interesting to note, though, that he fails to mention that he had flogged Paul just before he had found out that he was a Roman citizen. And so we get to the end of this chapter and we find Paul imprisoned once again. But imprisoned, assured that he will make it to Rome. The risen Lord has told him that he will get there. Assured that he will follow in his master's footsteps. That he is following the way. He is having the trials. He is having the persecution that comes with being a follower of Jesus. But more importantly, that he is about his Lord's business. He has had his teaching and his ministry that he's been doing in Jerusalem rubber stamped and said, yes, Paul, this is exactly the stuff that I want you to be doing for us in Rome. The nature of it is, is that if we go to the next slide, oh, and the next slide after that, there's uh, in a two days time, well, already there's a frenzy of excitement about Obama becoming the new sort of North American messiah. And one of his big slogans and one of the greatest probably oratorical moments of the century so far whenever he was doing his speech was the idea of, yes, we can. And he described it as the timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the people. The issue is, and what this, this passage teaches us, is that actually as God's people were more the next slide, which is, yes, he can. And the thing is that the historic thing that Israel was remembering from, from days of, of old is that in situations, the people were asking questions and were replying that, yes, he can. 
And so the situation was that when Abraham was being led out of Ur for the first time to know whether he could be in a community of God's people, the answer was that, can God do it? The answer was, yes, he can. The situation was that then whenever he was climbing up the mountain with Isaac and wondering, is God going to give me provision here? Is God going to give me a situation where I can get out of this? And the answer was that, yes, he can. Later on, whenever Moses was trying to lead his people out of Israel, and the question was, can God actually get me to the promised land? Can God create a people and a system and a nation? And the answer was again that, yes, he can. And whenever the Israelites let God down and the relationship with God was broken down and there was a situation um, where they wanted that, that community, that people of God to be restored, the question was asked again, you know, can God do this? And the people of Israel were able to answer that, yes, yes, he can. And even whenever the people of Israel were wandering around and they were reading the, the passages from Daniel and they were reading this notion, this concept of a resurrection and a Messiah, and they were questioning whether God could actually bring a Messiah that could restore this people, the answer was, yes, he can. And so there's a situation that the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, were, were in a situation where they were then questioning, can God bring a person on this earth who can heal the sick, who can preach with authority, who can raise people from the dead. And so the answer to that was, yes, he can. Could God then bring somebody on this earth who could be crucified on a cross and three days later rise from the dead? And as God's people have echoed throughout redemptive history, the answer again was, yes, he can. And so in a situation when Paul's life, and he's in this New Testament, this early church, And he's on this situation where he's trying to preach and he's trying to get the Christian community to get excited. And the question is, can God create a viable church from this this rabble of people who have failed him and let him down? And the answer that echoes again is, yes, he can. And so in this episode of Paul's life, whenever he's questioning what can happen, how can I get out of this trial with the Sanhedrin? Can, Can God help me in this situation? Again, God's people say, yes, he can. And in a situation where Paul's asking, can I actually make it to Rome? Can, can, will I get there? Again, Jesus comes to him in the night and says, take courage. Yes, I can. And so as we go out into the week ahead, and we're thinking about whether this issue of the resurrection, whether this hope of eternal life can change us, And whether we're in a situation when we're asking, can God transform my job? Can God make this worthwhile? Can God transform my financial situation? The thing is, as God's people have echoed throughout the years, we should echo now, yes, he can. And so ultimately, whenever we're questioning about that resurrection and we're looking for that hope, the question that's on our lips is, can God bring God's people to be with him? Can God create a new heaven and a new earth? Can God so bring this resurrection into being that these shadowlands will pass away, that this suffering, the situation that we're in at the moment, can it be purely the shadowlands? And can we spend eternity with him where there will be no more suffering, there will be no more crying? And God's people say, yes, he can. And so we stand and we think about that sort of that last hymn of one of those old, a last verse of one of those hymns that we sang, or certainly we used to sing in our church. 
And it goes, when he comes, our glorious king, with his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it has power to teach us. And we thank you that just as your Holy Spirit um, so challenged and was with the people who originally wrote this word, Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit comes and inhabits your word as we study it. And Lord, I thank you for the life of Paul, and I thank you that it shows us that if we follow in the footsteps of our Master, we're going to face persecution, we're going to face trials, and we're going to face situations where we're in trouble. But Lord, we thank you also that it points to the glorious hope of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that it shows us again that you not only died on the cross, but you rose again three days later. And Lord, we thank you that that is a down payment or a proof that if we have a relationship with you, and if we trust in you, that one day this world will cease to be. And Lord, that one day you will call us to be with you, And Lord, that we will be raised to life, and a life that is without comparison on this earth. And Lord, we thank you that that hope of spending eternity with you transforms how we live on this earth now. We thank you that it means that difficulties and so on on this earth are only temporal and will pass away. And Lord, it encourages us to point people to you. And so Lord, we thank you that in situations that we're in, we face at this moment, that we put that puts them into context. But more importantly, that whenever we ask whether you want to be involved in our lives and whether you can change them for the better, the answer is that yes, you can. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just transform our lives through the knowledge of this word, that we would be able to live in the light of eternity, and that that life-transforming release would be evident in our lives so that we would point people to you. We ask this in and through your precious name.